you know, I think it's good of all of us to put ourselves in the shoes of our patients and say, which therapy would you want to take if you were in their shoes? And uh, there is is definitely a role for traditional systemics. They've been the workhorse for us in many diseases for a long time, and they've got a long history. But when you really kind of look at the evidence, there isn't a lot there that's nearly as robust or efficacious as what we see nowadays with these sophisticated targeted therapies that we have available for psoriasis. The side effect profile is totally different. The efficacy profile is totally different. The time to improvement is totally different. And so they become incomparable in terms of what would you choose? It's more a question of what do you have to choose Mm. from a coverage or access point of view in order to get patients on advanced therapies? Yeah, I completely agree. And in this landscape of information overload and patients who do their own research, it's about shared decision-making. And so um, my general approach is to outline largely most of the categories in terms of treatment and try to determine what their philosophies are, what their sort of risk appetite is, any comorbidities as well. I think there's a lot of patient factors that go into determining what the approach will be. So it is not a one-size-fits-all. It's also follow-up, obviously access and insurance, et cetera. But thinking about what the patient's end goal is and making sure that they understand the impact of their disease. There are still physicians who feel that skin diseases are skin diseases, and why would you escalate treatment or go on an advanced therapy. Hmm. We also want to arm patients with the information around what is the risk profile of the condition itself and what is the burden of psoriasis itself. Hi, I'm Dr. Joseph. I'm Dr. Gita Yadav, and you're listening to the Skin and Joints Podcast. All right, everyone. Well, welcome to another episode of the Skin and Joints Podcast. Today, we're going to explore psoriasis. We know it's a chronic inflammatory disease, often associated with a number of somatic and mental comorbidities. We're going to specifically look at the tyrosine kinase 2 signaling pathway. And we know that immediate cytokine signaling has been implicated in the pathophysiology and clinical manifestation of psoriasis. What happens when we selectively inhibit TIC2 or tyrosine kinase 2? When it comes to the landscape of treatment in psoriasis, we have multiple options from biologics. We have newer oral agents available as well. But given that TIC2 plays a central role in the pathophysiology of psoriasis, it has the potential to alter and change the treatment landscape for psoriasis as we know it. Does it really tick all the boxes? No pun intended. Let's find out. This will mark the first time in the skin and joints podcast history that we have two guest experts on the show at the same time. I'm super excited. Our first guest, Dr. Marissa Joseph, is a pediatrician and a dermatologist from Toronto and completed her training at the Hospital for Sick Children, followed by a dermatology residency at U of T. She's completed a master's in community health at the Dalla School of Public Health, and she's a full-time academic faculty at the University of Toronto. She practices in general adult pediatric, and surgical dermatology. Her clinical research includes inflammatory skin disorders such as psoriasis, atopic dermatitis, and HS. Welcome, Dr. Joseph. We're glad to have you as part of the podcast. 
Very excited to be here. And our next guest expert, who's also from the East Coast, from Toronto, Dr. Gita Yadav, who's an expert in both medical and cosmetic dermatology. As a second-generation Canadian, her interest in underserved communities and treating BIPOC patients was inspired by her childhood travels to India. She holds a master's in international health from Johns Hopkins and completed her dermatology residency at the University of Toronto, where she still teaches today. When she's not working, she volunteers as an alumni governor at U of T. She loves running, dancing, and spending time with her husband and three young children. And she's also an Instagram superstar, if you've recently seen her video about this episode. Uh, Guys, thanks so much for being as part of the podcast. I'm going to get started. This is a very important question, and our listeners are always very curious. So this is probably one of the highest rated questions on all of our podcast episodes. But whoever wants to start first... Tell us something about yourself that our viewers may not know about you. Do you have a secret talent, a hobby? Are you a coffee aficionado? Do you have a secret sticker collection? Um, Before I get into my secret superpower, I want to say that East does not end with Toronto. (laughs) And I mean, we're even more East than that, and that I'm originally from Nova Scotia. So I want to put a plug for the East Coast. And I don't know if I have a secret talent, but I love photography. So if I could carry a camera around with me all day and capture random images, that would make me very happy. And there wouldn't be any dermatologic images that I would capture. (laughs) That was my next question. And for a point of reference, yeah, you're right. I think being out here on the West Coast in Vancouver, we think anything east of Calgary is East Coast. So Um, Dr. Yadav. I'm almost even embarrassed to admit it on this podcast, but I take breakdancing lessons with my two oldest kids, eight and six, on Sundays. I could watch breakdancing for hours and hours and hours. And so this is my second chance at living my other career. If I couldn't be a dermatologist, what would I want to be if I could be good at it? That's amazing. You know, I think you have to make an Instagram reel kind of showing us your moves once you're uh, <laughs> once you're ready. <laughs> it's going to take years. It's going to take years before it's, it's Instagram worthy. Love it. So these are things you only hear on the Skin and Joints podcast, of course. Uh, you didn't know that about your dermatologist. So tell us about your childhoods. And maybe I'll start with Dr. Joseph. What experience do you think led you to becoming a dermatologist? Looking back, what led you towards a pathway of entering this line of practice? Well, I think that I was inspired to become a dermatologist probably a bit later in life than other people. It was really mentorship. So I connected with people as medical student and looked at the impact that they had on their patients' quality of life, particularly patients with genetic disorders and um, eczema, because classically my training is originally in pediatrics and I was really pediatrics focused. But if I go way back, if we sort of pretend like I'm on the couch and I'm thinking about influences in my life, um, I actually had a sibling with really severe eczema and severe allergies to the point where he was sort of almost like a bubble child. And when I think about what I do now and hopefully try to find ways to have meaningful change and impact um, children's lives and their families. Um, That experience of being a sibling of a child who was affected like that probably influenced me as well, too. Mm, Very interesting. Okay. Dr. Yadav. I came by it a little bit differently. I thought that I would go into international health. That's why my master's is in international health systems. And I spent a summer uh, in medical school in India doing HIV and AIDS research with dermatologists. We were looking at adverse drug reactions. And I spent some time in their general medical clinics in a government hospital. 
in Bombay. And that was eye-opening. And I realized how dermatologists are able to diagnose so much without sophisticated tests or technology. Uh, we obviously have access to some of those, and now we have even more sophisticated treatments. Certainly not everybody in the world has access to those treatments, but uh, you know, that has changed over the years. And I think we are getting closer and closer to that better access. However, it was amazing to me that even how much power a diagnosis can have and a prognosis for patients to have some control over their lives. And skin mm -hmm. is one of those things that everybody can see. You can't see your high blood pressure. And so the buy-in from patients and that, uh, ability to kind of move together through that treatment process is something that I found really powerful. And that's sort of, you know, what inspired me to look more closely at the ability and the power of dermatologic training to help people. Wow. I mean, we didn't script both answers, by the way, guys. Uh, this is straight from the heart. And I think that's very, very interesting to hear what sparked that interest. I find that each derm has a, has a different story to share from that perspective. So today we'll chat with you guys about your clinical secrets when it comes to managing moderate to severe psoriasis. We want to start with understanding a little bit briefly about the patient journey. And as you see patients with moderate to severe PSO, what are some of the unmet needs our patients tend to experience and some of the barriers you find patients have to accessing care and even getting their first appointment with someone like yourself? Wait times are probably the biggest barrier in Ontario, but I think in Canada in general. Um, I was just thinking also about the regional differences that exist in our country from an access point of view. So in the most populous province in our country, in the densest city that we have, we still have long wait times, you know. So imagine in northern Ontario or in northern Saskatchewan, I think access is a different conversation and it's an even tougher one for patients that live in those areas. Diagnostic kind of certainty at the family physician level or nurse practitioner level there's not a lot of training that's given at those earlier levels of education on dermatologic diagnoses. So things get misdiagnosed. There's delayed diagnoses. There's delayed to referral. There's wait times to see us. And then, and then there's the access issue to medications that can be sophisticated therapies and that can be uh, difficult sometimes to obtain coverage for depending on the therapy you're choosing. Yeah, I would agree. It's delays to being able to access dermatologic care and then access to advanced therapies if they're appropriate. Interesting. And, you know, I was going to ask about the role of teledermatology, if there is a role in more moderate to severe, depending on how much body surface area is involved. But upstream and downstream from the patient journey, it seems like obviously the referral and the identification of the lesion itself and then downstream is once you're being prescribed a, an advanced therapy, for example, it's the access conversation and affordability and the onboarding. So there's a lot of pain points in the patient journey. Now, you know, one part of this conversation also includes quality of life. And we know that it's a key measure in assessing the clinical status of a patient. But would you say quality of life plays a big role in terms of how you even diagnose a patient, whether you bump a patient from mild to moderate or moderate to severe? I think so. The classifying of severity based on body surface area is one way to do it, but patients can have relatively localized disease, but in a very sensitive area that can severely impact their quality of life. For example, facial involvement or genital involvement or hand involvement, right? You don't have to be a hand model to still have your life significantly impacted by having severe hand skin disease. So the qualifier in terms of patient endpoint for quality of life is so important to consider in the treatment paradigm 
It also helps us to advocate for hmm. the patient, third party peers too. I also think there's a gender difference, you know, in terms of quality of life and sites that are considered to be sensitive. I love blow drying my hair once a week if I can get away with it. And if somebody asked me to use lotions and potions on a daily basis, it would massively disrupt my productivity. And so I really think women, you know, to make a bit of a gender stereotype for those of long hair, but also with curly textured hair, Dr. Joseph and I have talked often about this as a as a special site or as a challenge in terms of your quality of life and your daily function. It's something that isn't considered always when we're thinking about patients in general. Interesting. Very interesting. Yes, I can sympathize with patients. If you have a skin condition where the only solution is to apply an ointment twice a day for the rest of your life to try and convince them to do that is very difficult. Now we have options that really are changing people's lives. And we'll move into sort of that quality of life conversation further in the episode, which gets me to wanting to talk to you a little bit about some of the more systemic options for patients. And sometimes I hear from derms that, you know, I look at a patient, whether mild, moderate, or severe, or whether I can treat them with topicals or more systemic treatment options, depending on a number of factors. But what's your general approach for suboptimally controlled moderate to severe psoriasis? Where do you start? And specifically looking at the oral immunosuppressant options we have for patients today, things like the disease-modifying agents. You know, I think it's good of all of us to put ourselves in the shoes of our patients and say, which therapy would you want to take if you were in their shoes? And uh, there is definitely a role for traditional systemics. They've been the workhorse for us in many diseases for a long time, and they've got a long history but when you really kind of look at the evidence, there isn't a lot there that's nearly as robust or efficacious as what we see nowadays with these sophisticated targeted therapies that we have available for psoriasis. The side effect profile is totally different. The efficacy profile is totally different. The time to improvement is totally different. And so they become incomparable in terms of what would you choose? It's more a question of what do you have to choose from a coverage or access point of view in order to get patients on advanced therapies. Yeah, I completely agree. In this landscape of information overload and patients who do their own research, it's about shared decision-making. And so um, my general approach is to outline largely most of the categories in terms of treatment and try to determine what their philosophies are, what their sort of risk appetite is, any comorbidities as well. I think there's a lot of patient factors that go into determining what the approach will be. So it is not a one-size-fits-all. It's also follow-up, obviously access and insurance, et cetera. But I think thinking about what the patient's end goal is and making sure that they understand the impact of their disease. There are still physicians who feel that skin diseases are skin diseases and why would you escalate treatment? or go on an advanced therapy. Hmm. And so we also want to arm patients with the information around what is the risk profile of the condition itself and what is the burden of psoriasis itself. So that's my overall approach. And then looking at the risk profile and the risk appetite of the patient for each of these um, options. But I agree with Dr. Yadav that all of these medications 
we prescribe all of them and there may be a role for a lot of these medications in a particular patient profile. Right. It's really interesting how you guys are talking about putting yourself in the patient's shoes and having them as a partner in that shared decision-making conversation. Dr. Google is a friend and a foe, I like to say, of healthcare providers. Sometimes patients are coming and knowing more about a certain side effect of a therapy than you do and have essentially gone and validated it for themselves. That gets me also kind of interested in hearing your thoughts about more targeted options. And specifically in the oral space, I had mentioned in the introduction of the TYK2 pathway, which is a truly new and novel pathway that's being identified to manage psoriasis. And some are thinking, those who are listening, well, TIC2s, they're kind of part of this Jack family. Could you tell our listeners what exactly is the relationship? Is a TIC2 inhibitor kind of like a modified Jack inhibitor in essence? Sorry to keep you guys hanging. It's Aaron's fault. Please join us for part two of our conversation next week where Dr. Joseph and Dr. Yadav settle the Jack versus Tick debate. Also, Aaron, you forgot to mention, as a reminder, we kind of have to say this, the opinions expressed on the Skin and Joints podcast are for educational purposes only and do not constitute nor replace professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult with your healthcare provider if you have any concerns or questions about your health. By the way, that ticking noise was not the same one found on the TV show 60 Minutes, in case you wondered. Thank you to BMS for supporting today's episode with an independent medical educational grant. Let's chat soon.